What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Guess who's here today for the intro? John Rojas is here. Guess who is here for the interview? John Rojas was there. hey It's few and far between these days, but you got to get it while it's hot. This week, we are interviewing Marcus Kramer, and Marcus is a partner at Brand Affairs, which is an independent agency for public relations and brand strategy. And it's a really cool story about how we kind of came into contact with our guest this week, Marcus. They reached out to us on email, said that they listened to the show, a couple of partners at the firm, and wanted to help out. And we've been working with them for... I don't know, months now at this point, right? Yeah, they're helping us develop our like mission and our brand, all that good stuff, because Chris and I didn't have one. Well, <laughs> we just wanted to put good podcasts into the world, and that wasn't quite enough. That's not enough of a story, but we're working on that, and they're helping us trying to get the word out. And not only that, but Marcus is one of the smartest guys. When we were told, yeah, guys, we'll, we'll help you kind of pro bono because we like your show, we were like, what? And then we read his bio along with his partners. They're a little too smart for us. Marcus is an architect by training, went through, got some degrees at some really amazing places. He got a degree in international project management from University of California, Berkeley, got an MBA from the University of Oxford. He sits on a lot of boards right now, and he also helped Aston Martin and Harley Davidson grow their brands. So not a small feat at all. Yeah, not somebody, not a, not a bad person to have on our side. <laughs> pretty, yeah, pretty amazing. I remember looking at his bio for the first time, just being like, "Wait, 
he listens to our podcast. Yeah. So we're going to talk to Marcus today about branding and we're going to get into the idea of luxury and luxury brands, how they create that, what it means to pay $5 million for a watch. Some really interesting stuff that we haven't tackled on the podcast before. We're going to turn it over to Marcus here in a second. But before that, don't forget that you can head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, see what all's going on in the world of Smart People Podcast. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can rate us on iTunes and Stitcher from the buttons that we have conveniently on the site. All that great stuff. You know, guys, we really do appreciate it when you leave reviews for us on iTunes and Stitcher. It means the world to us. So if you could take two, three minutes of your day and go out there, leave us a review and a comment. We truly do appreciate it. And it helps us to continue to get amazing guests for the show. Now on to Marcus Kramer. Well, Marcus, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Excited to talk to you all about what's going on at Brand Affairs and a little bit about your background. So for those that don't know, for the audience members, why don't you give us a little background on um, what you're up to these days? Yeah, so we're up to into lots of stuff, basically. But one of the areas that we're really strong in and focusing on is helping... Um, it's actually twofold, helping luxury brands become more professional. Lots of times we've got clients that are actually small, medium enterprises, very often family-owned, very often um, uh, owners-driven, to help them compete in a global marketplace, particularly if you're into the luxury space. That can be anything from watches to cars to private banking, actually. And then the other thing is the flip side of it. It's really lots of clients that um, ask us, well, you know, what could we actually learn from this luxury goods industry? It seems to be incredibly successful, but what, what actually is there? What, how does it tick? help us understand and help us maybe get some insights in what we could learn from the luxury from the luxury goods industry and really those two are areas where we are um, uh, where we're strongly engaged in let's put it that way particularly in continental europe but increasingly outside as well asia notably and um, U.S. to some extent as well. Yeah, and I definitely want to go into this idea of luxury. And in the intro, John and I kind of talk about uh, brand affairs in general and even how we all met. So it's a really interesting right. story. But how about some background on how you got into this space of kind of marketing and a little bit about your uh, specific background? Yeah, I've, so I spent the last probably 15 to 20 years in the brand and marketing retail development space. Um, but really, really, if you really go all the way back, I'm actually an architect by training. I started off in architecture a long time ago. And um, at some point, after about four years, came to the conclusion, this is great. I love the whole idea of planning, of blueprinting, assembling craftsmen, building something, delivering it. But if you build a house, which is what you do when you're an architect, or you know, maybe it's a commercial building, but it's static. Once you're done, it's there, it's static, it doesn't move. And it wasn't really commercial enough, to be perfectly honest. It wasn't commercial enough. It wasn't dynamic enough. And so I got into, um, uh, very quickly, into the commercial world, into the commercial world of um, cars, and spent a long time in cars brand, spending you know, time with Mazda, Ford Motor Company, Honda, really the sort of mass space, if you think about the car world. And into um, marketing, went on, did, um, did my bit in the army, did an MBA at the uh, University of Oxford over in the UK, spent quite a bit of time in, uh, in Berkeley in, in the US as well. But along, along that and in between jumped jobs from, you know, 
four wheels to two wheels and, and got a really great opportunity to work for nearly seven years with, um, with the Harley-Davidson Motor Company. And if you think about brand and the power of brand, of, um, of that almost institutional power a brand like this exudes, you, you do learn a lot. You do learn a lot. And I later on was able to take this into the world, back into the world of four wheels with, with Aston Martin. Um, a great, great experience as well. And um, you know, after 15, well, probably 18 years, thought, hey, I mean, this great collective experience, why wouldn't you bundle that up? Why wouldn't you take that and take it to more people, more places, more businesses that could probably benefit from all this experience. And this is how I got where I am. And um, it's this collective experience that I pretty much take, take to individuals sometimes, but mostly it's um, uh, SMEs and some of them are actually quite big brands too. Well, let's talk about brands in general. And as you mentioned, you work for a long time at Harley Davidson, who has built just a, a lifestyle brand, if you will. I mean, they represent, you just hear that name and you think kind of, you know, uh, American or just tough, gritty, passion, you know, fast, all that. It just comes to mind. And so in, in your opinion, somebody who's been in the industry for so long, what does it mean to be a brand and to build a brand? What does it mean to be a brand or to build a brand? And I think this is where we're going to um, uh, probably later on make the bridge into the world of luxury. I think one of the really fundamental ones is to have a really crystal clear sense of purpose, such a sharp understanding of uh, who you are and, and, and why, the very reason why you exist. That it almost um, uh, transcends and exudes throughout the organization without having to go through it, you know, you don't really have to teach and preach people who you are and what you do. People just join uh, in the, the, the reason for the, the very reason for existence by uh, the pure passion for who you are and what you, what you are. And Harley is a great example of this. I mean, throughout the motor company, you know, all the way up to the, to the, to the president and, and CEO, you will have this passion going throughout down to the, the, you know, the workers on the line. This is, I think, truly unique. Um, if you find this, and you do find this, um, particularly in the luxury goods sector too. So, do you think that it's more important to exude your brand internally to your own employees or externally to the consumer? Both, but it starts. It starts. You know, like like for us as individuals, it starts within yourself. If you're not able or capable to do this with, uh, with a huge degree of uh, enthusiasm, but also integrity and a value system you really, truly believe in, it's very unlikely the customer is going to notice that. And it comes across as either mechanical or transactional, and both of them don't really um, do anything for passion. You know, when I think of branding in general, and I know a lot of people who feel this way, although the average consumer is just inundated with things, Sometimes I feel like I'm stronger than that, right? Oh, I don't, you know, I might see the commercial, but it doesn't really associate with anything. Or I might see their billboards or their ads or their packaging, but it's not going to entice me to buy. To, mm -hmm. what, what would you say to that person who feels like, you know, the, the branding isn't really what's selling the product or the service? It's probably true. Because if you think about it, the notion today, if you think about branding, if you think about marketing, this is very quickly associated with big budgets and huge sort of, you know, huge marketing communications activities going anywhere from traditional, you know, traditional one way TV all the way through to digital and interactive. But it's still a means to manipulate you as an individual. And I think this is this is kind of what comes across as thinking, oh, you can't manipulate me. You know, I'm not, I'm not really um, uh, up for that. 
But if you're if you're really into a territory of purpose where you have such a crystal clear way of um, addressing a universal truth almost or a universal human need as a brand, then this becomes almost secondary. And if you look at you know, companies like the Harley-Davidson Motor Company, but if you look at companies like Aston Martin, if you look at companies like supercars, for example, or high-end watch manufacturing, um, it's not only about the, the marketing communications efforts in these companies. They're actually almost... Um, almost happening on the on on the side there's a lot more at play and people buy into these brands for a lot more than by being convinced by media john i see you nodding your head what's going on <laughs> yeah i mean i look at i look at brands like apple and they do a lot of media stuff but they also do a lot for their customers making them feel like they're part of this group they make them feel special on the days that they release new products and that kind of thing i was just at the apple store today and i know my my experience there was amazing. I was in and out, got the help that I needed. And I just felt like walking out that door, I was like, man, I love this place. And I like to think of myself as like a smart person too, and not, you know, affected by all of this imagery and branding and all that kind of stuff. But when they create this culture that you want to be part of, I see that aspect of branding too. Yeah. You know, this is, I think this is a really good example. And if you take any modern brand, any Sort of you know uh, sort of contemporary technology. If you if you look at interbrand study, for example, the most valuable brands in the world. So there's a number of people that do this with very sophisticated and very clever models. But if you look at the interbrand, for instance, you know the five most valuable brands. If you go out and, and Google them up and look at it, four out of them are technology brands. And there's only one that isn't a technology brand. It's Coca-Cola, still there and probably will be there for a long time. But the other four have emerged relatively, relatively recently. And if you look at number one, it's Apple. So if I go back to, well, what does Apple do really, really well? And then go back to, well, how does the luxury goods industry actually pay? I mean, you'd be surprised how many parallels you would, you'd actually find in there. For example, the obsession with product. Right. This is something that luxury goods companies do incredibly well. Think of a high-end watch manufacturer somewhere hidden in the Swiss mountains somewhere, You're a very small company. Over 200 years, they will have honed their mechanical expertise, the tradition, the people, the craftsmen, the dedication, the passion it takes to create the masterpiece in time making. Sometimes for a Grand Tourbillon, it will take a year to create one movement. Think about how you instill that within your company and in your brand it's total obsession for the product it's a complete antidote right most marketing and brand guys will say hey it's all customer centric it's all about the consumer it's all about the customer but in reality if you if you don't go back and say well, well how did apple actually get where they are it's total obsession with the product and i'm not saying they don't love their customers but they're so incredibly good at what they're doing because they're so focused on delivering the very best in terms of hardware, in terms of software, in terms of user experience. And this is, this is really, this is really at, the, at the nucleus of the luxury goods industry as well. I think that's really interesting because oftentimes branding, uh, I think, gets skewed so much in the direction of it's only what the consumer sees. It's only what's kind of pushed upon them, the message that's told to them. But really, it oftentimes, as you mentioned, goes back solely initially to the the product or service itself. I mean, you can't you could probably have the best branding strategy in the world for a really terrible product. And it might work for a little <laughs> bit, but I, the life expectancy has got to be, I mean, tiny. Have you do anything come to mind or any companies you've ever seen do that or? Well, 
um, let's just say that probably nine out of 10 will go down that route, uh-huh. right? They crank something out, especially the large FMCG companies. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll come up with a great idea. They'll productize it. They'll have all the sophistication in the world um, thrown at it. And they'll also throw you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars at it to promote it. Nine out of 10 times, I'd say, this is relatively short-lived. And it's really, really unfortunate, I think, because at some, you know, at some point, there probably, there's probably you know, there's good, good examples in, in, in history. Think about think, New Coke, right? You guys probably don't remember that. I barely just <laughs> remember it. But New Coke is a great example where I think, well, you know, there's these huge conglomerates out there with all their cleverness and sophistication still stumbling up in relatively simplistic things in life of taking the consumer into, into the very heart of what they do really asking the simple questions well what needs you know, what need are we actually addressing and does it actually fulfill any larger purpose does it make my life better as a consumer and how do we how do we address this and not think about the communications aspects first that comes a lot later when you actually have a really great service and a really great product again if you go back to well who is doing this really really well the luxury goods industry there and i'm really thinking high-end luxury are doing this incredibly well yeah, so let's talk about luxury. I mean, first, when you mention luxury, what defines a luxury brand versus perhaps just another brand that happens to be mildly expensive? Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I do claim that we can collectively as individuals and and as companies in particular, whether you're B2C or B2B doesn't actually matter. You can learn from this industry. So but if we think about learning from this industry, we really have to ask ourselves first starting off what what actually is it what defines it but yeah let me ask let me flip the question around what's luxury to you is it is it a supercar is the bugatti veyron for 2 million dollars with 1000 horsepower is that luxury or is it a Fairlines Quadrant 78, you know, a super yacht, maybe, maybe two, three, four million. Is it Hublot? Five million. So we have, we have over here, we have the largest, the world's largest watch fair every year in March called the Basel World. And Hublot is a great brand. And they've presented a watch called the Hublot 5 million. The Hublot 5 million, as the name says, you know, this, this is territory of watch, watchmaking where you're into sort of five million dollar uh, space and if you think about it, it's twelve hundred diamonds on this on this watch. If I could show you a picture of this, I mean, you know, it would blow you out of your socks. It's Wait, when you, you say five million, you mean the watch costs five million dollars? The, the watch costs five million dollars. <laughs> right. So, and of course, you know, you go really into the super high end luxury space with this. Who buys this? And uh, we can talk about this a little bit later on. But from there, you move on. Well, you know, maybe maybe luxury to you is a private jet. It's either flying in a private jet. Maybe it's buying a private jet. If you go all the way up to having your own Boeing business jet, you're talking hundreds of millions. Maybe luxury is diamonds for you. You know, maybe it's a diamond for you or for your girlfriend or for your wife. Or maybe luxury is walking into a Louis Vuitton store, buying a beautiful bag. But if you spin that further... Right, so these are the traditional cliches of what we think when we um, talk about luxury. This is sort of the emotions it evokes, the imagery, the visuals you think of if you speak or talk about luxury, sort of the inaccessible. But maybe luxury is an experience, maybe luxury is travel, or maybe luxury is actually um, even more uh, inwardly focused. Maybe it's a spa treatment. No one else sees it. No one else knows about it. It's just very your very own time. And I think, um, uh, I'm not sure if you guys know it, but Coco Chanel, Chanel numero, number five, Chanel number five, very famous 
very, very famous um, uh, perfume, basically. But she said, some people think luxury is the opposite of poverty. It is not. It's the opposite of vulgarity. And, you know, just think about it, right? People think luxury is the opposite of poverty. It is not. It's the opposite of vulgarity. She said that 50 years ago. And I think she was spot on because what she really means is that luxury is really beyond materialism. Luxury is really something that happens in yourself and really has to do with sophistication and taste. Unfortunately, with some of the earlier examples, right, you can very quickly jump to the conclusion luxury is only about um, showing off, right? Luxury is only about demonstration of status. And if we take that and then say, well, okay, so if we, if we understand a little bit of what maybe this luxury is, well, how big is it? It's huge business if you think about it. The luxury goods, the luxury goods business is roughly estimated by, by BCG, Boston Consulting Group. So don't claim IP over this figure, but it's, it was estimated in 2010 at about $1.2 trillion, the luxury industry. So this is really, really big. This is not just, you know, one Hublot 5 million. This is lots, hundreds of thousands of very expensive luxury goods, mainly in the fashion and clothing, in the watch and jewelry business, leather goods, accessories, cosmetics, but also travel and hotels, and of course, all the way up to luxury uh, supercars. But if I were to tell you now that actually, you know, I've said this is 2010, I'm not sure if you noted that, but if you were to look at this composition again today, it's doubled, right? It's nearly two and a half trillion US dollars. Think about it. Didn't we just have a huge financial crisis? And didn't Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008? Didn't the world at large just go into a huge economic sort of, you know, dark black hole and hopefully is emerging out of it? But here we have an industry that has doubled in the same time that the rest of most industries actually had a really difficult time. How do you explain that? How do you explain such a tremendous um, success? And if you, were to, if you were to compare this, say, for example, to you know, S&P, uh, you, can, you can take the S&P Global Luxury Index and compare it. You can do this. You can Google it and you can compare it to just generally how did the luxury goods sector um, perform over the last five to six years. And what you would see is not only this, yeah, we actually the thing did double, right? This industry is tremendously successful. You'd also see that it really didn't have such a massive hit in the last recession and it recovered a lot quicker and a lot, a lot swifter. Why do you think that is? You know, this, this, there are some fundamental questions where I think this whole idea of learning from the luxury industry has some really solid grounding. This isn't just made up stuff. There is actually a real dynamics in this market that are happening that um, a lot of businesses could do really well to take a closer look at. All right, Chris, I have to ask, I kind of blasted you during the last spot, calling you a late or last adopter. Yeah, I heard that. Mm -hmm. But I want to know what you think about smart things now. Well, I'm going to be honest. I, my initial question was, hey, why do I need to you know, use my phone to turn on a light or monitor everything in my home? But when I went on the website and checked some things out, I realized I was really late to the party. Yeah, because it's so much more than turning on the light. I know we've talked about you're buying a new home. You have so many more things to worry about. And one of those things that we never even thought about was leaks in a house, right? 
Yep. And yeah, my my dad had a leak in his basement. It cost him, I think, five grand to re- replace the floors. And instead, for like a hundred bucks, you can use smart things, and it'll tell you. So peace of mind, no matter where you are. I'm glad you're finally a convert now. Well, and also, you ever leave the house and go, I wonder if I lock that door, if I close that door, if I turn this off? I've done that, and I have to go back, drive back in the house and check that out. You can do that right from your phone when you leave. It took me the cool video on the website, so I would recommend everyone just go check it out. Go to smartthings.com slash smartpeople. Make sure you go to slash smartpeople because you get 10% off and lets them know that you're supporting the show. And check out the video on there. With no required monthly fees and kits starting at just $189, Smart Things is affordable for everyone. Get 10% off any home security or solution kits when you go to smartthings.com slash smartpeople. And now back to the show. Well, and I, I definitely want to get into that, but on the subject of kind of how the luxury brands have thrived, my initial thought is it's probably because... or. A, you know, a lot of it's due to the disparity of wealth across the globe. I mean, I think that, you know, these these dips in the market affect the middle and lower class a lot more than those that had 50 billion and now they have 30 billion, but they can they still have more money than they could buy in jets and five million dollar watches. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right. If you, if you take it down to there's 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 clearly a number of factors playing into this. But if you Look at the hard facts, for example. Um, you could simply take growth of uh, world wealth, for example, as expressed in, you know, within the jargon, we would call them high net worth individuals, H&W, or even ultra high net worth individuals. But say high net worth individuals are basically people, they own um, uh, roughly a million, a million dollars, um, net disposable cash to spend right now. So this doesn't you know, count your residence or your, your property. This is a million dollars to spend. If you were to look around the globe on how many of these people are out there, um, in 1996, there were probably about five, six million of these. Then if you look again, 2010, you know, just, let's just go back to four years ago, there were roughly about 10 million uh, people. So it's doubled, but it took quite a bit of time. But in four years, we're now 16, 17 million. And by 2020, we'll be at 20 million millionaires around the world. So clearly, you're right, right? It's, it's, it's income disparities. So there's more people um, that just have a lot of money. And um, if you then take another factor, well, where is this wealth created? Where is this wealth? Old money and old wealth still is very predominantly in, in the Western world, the US, continental Europe, etc. But if you look at the acceleration of growth, you have China, look at Asia and look at where um, some of this money is coming from and where some of these luxury goods really are sold as well. I'm not saying they're necessarily sold in China, but it's sold a lot to Chinese consumers traveling around the world. And so you do have a lot more people with a lot higher disposable incomes, particularly with the rising middle class in the break markets, Brazil, Russia, India and China, um, that explain some of this tremendous growth, uh, despite really in, in our world's um, economic uncertainty. But there's a third factor that I think is really crucial as well, uh, and that's brand. It's the intangibles really inherent in those brands. If you think about instability, if you think about economic worries and so forth, right, then to buy something that has timeless value almost, that is really an anchor in stability that you can truly believe in, that will not only you know, satisfy your own 
um, desire of owning a luxury product, but possibly and very likely um, retain its value or perhaps even increase its value over time. Then luxury goods have a lot of intangibles, the stories behind you know, the imagery that we just discussed that it evokes are things you can't really touch but have tremendous value. And particularly when things are a bit difficult, consumers will very quickly orient themselves to brands or labels that truly stand for something, that truly have uh, integrity in their value chains, for example, and are ready to pay a, a big, big premium of way beyond and above the value of the actual product. That's really interesting because I was hoping, you know, I know we were going in this direction, but what are the things that we can learn from these luxury brands? Because they get to a place where the margins become astronomical. And it's, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, because they're selling the story, the emotion. I think that's one of the biggest things is you're selling the feeling of purchasing it, owning it, whether that be, uh, you know, feeling like you're important or your ego or mm -hmm. comfort or whatever it might be. <laughs> how do they yeah. how do they do that? Yeah. Okay. Let's. Um, yeah. I think before we jump to well, how you know how do they do that? What can we really take from it? What you've just mentioned is actually super fundamental to understand for anyone who wants to really you know have a, a more than such, just a superficial understanding of what luxury is. This ego, this emotion. Yes, the emotion is very much um, a state of you know it's a state of happiness generally. If you think about positive emotions and what possibly luxury brands can do today to to help you achieve this, but if you go a step back and you mentioned ego i think this is really important um let's just let's just take maybe a minute or two to explore that a little bit more because it's so fundamental think about think about louis XIV, right louis XIV, one of the greatest french rulers on earth probably one of the most powerful monarchs having walked this earth so here we are in the 16th 17th um, century medieval france imagine you know, the, the beautiful pompous um, uh, castles in, uh, in, the, in the outskirts of uh, Paris and Versailles, etc. And here you have a ruler. If you picture him, if I, would if I were able to show you a picture, you would see a guy that you would just think, okay, the guy is a really 16th, 17th um, uh, century monarch. He's wearing high heels, right? <laughs> He's wearing high heels and he wears a huge, massive robe. So picture this, right? All this pomp. Why do you think a guy like this would have worn high heels, right? Why, why is that? So clearly he wasn't a very tall guy. He was actually relatively short. But even so he complemented his bodily height with, uh, with, by wearing high heels. But even if he were you know, super tall, he would still have worn high heels in those days. So this is a, a slight hint into what really makes luxury different or how it how, how it really defines luxury and so is the rope actually the rope was so massive it he couldn't even walk on his own certainly not in high heels he had to have people helping him going from a to b so how do you what does that question or what does this description have to do with luxury if you think about it and i'll bounce the question back guys anything spring to mind what that could have to do with luxury, a guy wearing high heels in the in the you know, 16th, 17th century, not being able to move from one place to the other. But clearly, he's the biggest guy in town. What could that have to do with luxury? John, what you got? I mean, I just I just think like he wants to be the biggest, be the prettiest. Yeah, he wants to be the man and be looked at as the man. Yeah, that's you know, it's very it's very much around that notion. It, it's a demonstration of it's basically a demonstration of power, mm -hmm. and this was really a demonstration of social power. So, side note, right? High heels were actually invented by men. They were worn by men for many hundred years, 
And it's only relatively recently that we see women wearing high heels. I mean, can you imagine walking in high heels as a man, right? I'm not sure if, you, if you've ever no, tried it. I certainly, I certainly haven't, I haven't <laughs> tried it. Give it a go or ask any, uh, any lady, you know. This, but this is relatively recent that, um, uh, that the women wear high heels. And it really has to do with empowerment. And, you know, you know John, you really mentioned it. It's, hey, this is about power. This is about power. It's such a simple thing. And it really has to do with observation that people wouldn't normally notice. They wouldn't think to associate anything or any origins or any roots back to that. Luxury as a concept goes back, you know, a lot longer than this. But I think this is a good example because Louis XIV was clearly there to exude power, social power, might over his people. And you're right, you know, to demonstrate that you would do anything, basically, even if, you, if, it, even if it meant that you couldn't even move yourself from A to B. But what it also means is that luxury is a very transitional concept. So we didn't get, you know, we're not, we're not stuck anymore in the, in the Middle Ages and, and Louis XIV. But from the demonstration of power or social power, particularly over the last sort of 100, 150 years with industrial revolution and sort of you know, the consumer products or the mass products being more accessible to more people, well, you know, humanity and the elite society had to find new ways to demonstrate status, to differentiate themselves. And this was expressed and still is in a lot of markets through materialistic expressions such as you know, the shiny red um, fast car, let's say. For example, or you know, a, a, a or you know, a Hublot five million with twelve hundred diamonds on it. That is quite a a powerful demonstration of wealth. So we've seen the the transitional concept of luxury developing from demonstration of powers and social power to demonstration of wealth. And how do you show that through status symbols? And that's gone for the last probably fifty to sixty years. And if you were to look around the world on a map, some markets. Some markets, particularly the brick markets, will still tick very much on this notion of differentiation and demonstration of status. However, a lot of markets, particularly sort of the Western European markets, but I would include the US there as well, have gone beyond that, have gone beyond that and said, well, you know, it goes back to the very earlier point that I mentioned from Coco Chanel and what she defines as luxury, which she actually had in mind 50 years ago is, well, maybe this is much more about sophistication. Maybe, maybe this, is much more, this is much more about taste. And maybe I don't have to show off um, so much, but I can actually enjoy this for myself. And at, at the very core of it is still this transitional concept of status, status of demonstration of powers and social power through demonstrate, demonstration of uh, social status as in wealth and demonstration of wealth going into demonstration of sophistication and taste as in the, the more advanced um, societies and the more um, sort of discerning consumers around this world to get to this position where it's no longer needed to show off, where it's no longer needed to drink or you know, have my bottle of wine positioned on the table as such so you can see the label of it. And it's interesting that Emerging markets, in particular China, is actually very quickly coming onto that territory. It won't take them 30 or 40 years like some of the Western societies took. It will go a lot faster and some of the luxury brands start to feel this probably already, I would imagine. If I were a high-end um, uh, watch manufacturer, I would ask myself the question, supercars as well, ask myself the question, how quickly is that curve evolving? We're not talking a generation, we're talking 5, 10 years.
If I was an eccentric like millionaire or billionaire and I wanted to have the best cars, the best watches, that type of thing, I would look towards these luxury brands. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, I'm not in that market. So the market that I am in, you know, these companies that are going after middle class and everyday people within the world, what have they learned from the luxury brands? And who are some of these companies that have picked up on, you know, the principles that these luxury brands do, how they're able to convey this type of emotion and get people to, you know, be very loyal to their brand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The world that is described, particularly with these high-end, high, very high-end universes, right. inaccessible to most, right? Simple fact of life and a very deliberate fact of life as well. A very deliberate fact to really focus on this aspirational dream world. This is where you generate the exclusivity and a very deliberate way of communicating this exclusive world, this dream, towards sort of um, you know, the, the masses, let's say. And it's a deliberate way of creating distance. It's a deliberate way of creating, I would call it almost social distance. And you do this through product, limited product, and limited products, limited editions. You do it through distribution. And, you know, you can't access it everywhere. You have to find a particular luxury shop. And price, of course. And price is the one that people jump instantly to. Well, it's inaccessible. You know, we'll never be able to afford it, but I'd love to have one. <laughs> so this is the mechanics. But if you, you, know, you to your question, so you know, you mentioned Apple. I think you know earlier on, and I think it's a very good example to unpack some of these some of these me- mechanics. So, say for example, the principle of scarcity, right? To to create a deliberate scarcity around your product. So we talked about the really strong focus um, on and the really the, the really the passion, the almost you know unique focus on creating a great product first and then about the customer, something that's Apple done really well. We've touched on this. But if you were to take scarcity um, as a principle on how luxury works, well, you know, and you, you go back to Apple, well, distribution, right? It's, it's actually, you know, if you want to go to an Apple store, you have to, you know, this, it's unlikely just around your corner. You actually have to either be in a place or deliberately go there. If you look scarcity in terms of promotional effectiveness, well, you know, the queues of people um, queuing up for the latest iPhone 6 in front of the Apple stores and so forth. Well, well you know, do you honestly think this is, this, is, this is left to chance and this is just purely by coincidence? <laughs> There's a lot of deliverance in creating this. And what does it fuel? It fuels exclusivity, it fuels aspiration, and it ultimately allows you to extract more value for your product or for your brand. So there are things that you can play with um, very, very deliberately, but it's, very, it's a very balancing and a very careful, very careful act. But an Apple iPhone, let's say, if we stick with an iPad or an iPhone, it's very accessible. It's very accessible. So one of the things that is happening, and I would call this democratization of luxury. This is, this is typically in the U.S. This is a good example as well. If we think about car brands, you know, think about Lexus, think about Infinity, and whether you would consider those brands as luxury brands or not. They are primarily technology brands, and they're really good brands. They're really good cars. But how they, how would they compare on this or Tesla as a car manufacturer? You know, would you consider Tesla a luxury brand? Well, think about price. Okay, it's you know, I would actually think uh, this is reasonably accessible. I wouldn't compare this with a Hublot Five Million, for example. <laughs> but it's probably in the premium space. But distribution, very cleverly, right? I mean, not every, you know, if you really want to go to a Tesla car dealership, it's very likely Tesla owns it. I'm not 100% sure, but I think they actually own all of their 
stores, the oh, yeah. people in their stores, right? They, the equipment in their stores, the, lo- the locations. So they control the vertical value chain almost entirely. Maybe not the supply chain, but the vertical um, chain that takes the car to you, they own it. And it gives them great, like Apple, it gives them fantastic, a fantastic um, ability to control the customer experience. A lot of struggle with this omni-channel experience. And how do we all integrate it? How do we make it happen? Take Hermes, take Louis Vuitton. They own their channel. They control you know, the, the people. In, the people employed in a, in a Louis Vuitton store are Louis Vuitton people. In an Hermes store, there are Hermes people. They're not hired by some third party that has different interests. That where you're just a product on the shelf. It's true for Apple. It's true for Tesla as well. So that's very inherent, very inherent in the, in the luxury goods industry. So they take these principles very deliberately and they make them, you know, make, they make great use of those principles for, for the brands and for, for their products. What's the difference between your retirement plan and a smart retirement plan? A smart plan lets you retire sooner with the same contributions. Part of it comes down to strategic investments and optimizations of your portfolio. The other part is reducing those high fees that you're paying. And with our sponsor this week, Future Advisor, you get both. And that combination could shave years off your retirement and put you on the golf course sooner. Just plug in your investments and Future Advisor will give you an honest grade on your current portfolio's performance, diversification, taxes, everything. So John and I went over and and put our stuff in there and got our grades. And unfortunately, they were not awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Although I'm a finance major, I got two F's and two A pluses. What about you, John? Uh, I'll just say I did a little worse. Luckily for me, Future Advisor will show you how you're doing and how to improve for free. Either make the changes yourself or if you'd like, Future Advisor will manage your portfolio for a fraction of what a traditional advisor would charge. Thinking about retirement's difficult. Oftentimes, it's a long ways in the distance, and you can't quite see it clearly. But when you use Future Advisor, you get a clear picture of where you stand and what you need to do to retire on time. Right now, Future Advisor is offering listeners to Smart People Podcast three months of the premium investment management for free. Go to futureadvisor.com slash smart people. Let new technology give you complete clarity on all of your investments and a plan to meet your goals sooner. As Chris mentioned, go to futureadvisor.com slash smart people for your three-month free premium portfolio management. And now back to the show. Now, I want to get a sense of, you know, at, at Brand Affairs, you work with a number of brands ranging, I'm assuming, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from luxury to things that wouldn't necessarily be considered luxury, right? That's very true. So when they come to you, um, I'd say these non-luxury brands, what's kind of the process that you walk them through? And what would you recommend for people who are even maybe entrepreneurs, solopreneurs? um, You know, here's what you need to do to start Mm -hmm. building your brand. And if you have one, here's how you kind of up your game. Right. Yeah. Okay. So here's the hands-on stuff. You know, what would you really do? What do you really do um, with with all these insights? Um, firstly, uh, there's probably five or six that I'll, that I'll walk you through, and I think anyone can do them for themselves. But the first one and the most important one is, again, be crystal clear on purpose. And you know, let, let, me, let me maybe um, spend a minute on what I mean by that, because there's, you know, there's plenty of people talking about purpose and you know, what's the difference towards a, a vision or a mission, etc. But purpose, this is really um, who you are, what you stand for. Um, it is really, it, it's a 
it's a difficult, it's, it's actually a surprisingly difficult stage to reach with either individuals um, or companies. And the bigger the companies are, the more difficult this is to reach. But I call this, it's really, um, I would call this shared and aligned purpose. So do this for yourself, right? Ask yourself, what do we really stand for, right? And can you answer this question to me in five words or less? Just do this mental exercise. Who are you? What do you stand for? really fundamentally, five words or less. And then you go sort of in your mind, you, you, or you can actually do this as an exercise in your company, and you go to your staff and you ask the same question, what do we really stand for? I'll give you five words. Tell me what we stand for. And you look at this and you, you, you check this, and if it's not spot on, but it's from a meaning point of view, the same thing, really you can tie it down and say, yeah, you know, this is the same thing, then I would call this shared purpose. Um, if you then go outside and you ask you know, your, your suppliers, your partners, ask your customers the same question and you go, what do we really stand for? If you get, again, the same answer within that very tight sort of five words, then you have aligned purpose. If you have shared and aligned purpose, you're in a really good position. You're, but if you don't have that, equally, go back and do the thinking. There are great frameworks, the eight P's of luxury, for example. Again, going back to the luxury industry, there are other frameworks to help you define that, get to that point. This is not a vision. This is not a mission. This is not an objective. It's the universal need you address. And then from there, you go and say, okay, so if, let's assume you have that. You're crystal clear on who you are and what you stand for. Then you go and say, well, how do you know, very likely you're not alone. Very, very likely you're not the only one with the same purpose out there, particularly if you're in the commercial space. Where do you differentiate? How do you differentiate? What is your real territory of differentiation? And again, if I, you know, I'll give you an example. For, for example, for, for Aston Martin, I've spent a long time working with the guys. They're a fantastic brand. But where do you differentiate? They're not necessarily, they're clearly not the fastest cars in the supercar world. They're not um, necessarily um, from a technology point of view. You, know, you could look at Germanic cars, you could look at all kinds of, you really differentiate the technology. If you're really honest, no, you know, it doesn't. And not everybody's James Bond either driving one, but where do you differentiate? Well, I would claim, and I would still claim that, and I hope the guys still claim that, it's just the most beautiful car in the world. It's a very simple, bold statement, and it's very, trans it's very translatable. You can really take that and translate that into China, right? If you have a customer claim that is too complicated, too complex, and works in the, let's say, the Western world, power, beauty, soul, for Aston Martin, it's a very difficult concept to translate into China. And if you hold this against, you know, Ferrari Formula One, great, you know, this is just really super fast cars. And you hold it against, uh, you know, let's say, you know, Porsche, oh, well, it's technology. And you have one word to describe it. Um, at Aston, we got to the point where we said, well, it's beauty. Let's just put a stake in the ground and differentiate about the territory of beauty, the most beautiful car in the world. You wouldn't say that necessarily to the outside world, but what you would do is the third point. You act on it with total integrity. You really do everything you can to underpin that territory of differentiation. So again, you know, going back to the car world, if it looks like leather and you claim it's leather, it is real leather and it's sourced from a, you know, or from a um, organically, um, um, uh, um, from a corporate point of view, ethically sourced uh, provenance. If it's hand-stitched or it looks like hand-stitching, you know, live with the imperfections, but it's a human being behind it that actually does it. 
And integrity is not just um, tied to material. It's also tied to people, your leadership skills, how you treat people, how you compensate people, the pride you instill within people, for example. So you do everything you can do to build a value proposition that is really thoroughly done with integrity around your territory of differentiation. The fourth point would be to, and that's way undervalued, particularly in startups, particularly in B2B, um, particularly in the services industry, this is completely undervalued and we could do so much more with it. Make it beautiful, make things beautiful. You know, nature, nature is incredibly strong at it, right? You look at the flower, look at the rose. I mean, how does nature do this? It's just simply beautiful and it doesn't, you know, it looks so easy for nature or trust for, for, for nature to do this. And we as humans, we think system, we think process, we think infrastructure, we think maximizing profits for our own sake. We think, you know, large call center operations when really the individual wants to hear a human voice that you know, sounds like your next door body. Sappos mm -hmm. does a great job at this, for example. Make it beautiful. So this is an example of a customer interaction, but it could go a lot further. It doesn't just have to be a, a supercar that was painted, you know, for 50 hours. And of course, without you even noticing this looks beautiful, there's deliverance in it. And, you know, creating beautiful things or simple things is actually really, as you know, I'm sure Apple would support this, it's really complex. It's really difficult to get to the point where you do have a product that is absolutely stunning and it's beautiful and it works beautifully. But make it beautiful, every, every service, every interaction, every customer interaction, every invoice you print, any email you send, make it beautiful, not just efficient. And then look beyond the money. This is a difficult one for people to understand. And you ask the question, you know, if, you, if I'm not in the luxury space or if I'm an entrepreneur or I'm an aspiring one, well, this is a really difficult one to understand. Look beyond the money. What does that mean? But it goes back to your purpose. How do you address a fundamental human need by not just going down the route of making it super efficient, making it super slick, making it turn more profit for you? Because it's very likely that people at some point, yes, they justify always with rationality. Everyone does. Even if you buy the Hublot 5, 5 million, you will make sure you have a, you really feel like this is going to retain its value and it's not just you know, going to be sold for half the price on eBay in five years. You wouldn't do that if, even if you had every, all the money in, in the world. Look beyond the money really means of what can you do within your business, within your brand, to really give people a reason to believe that goes beyond the money they put onto the table. Harley Davidson is a fantastic example um, for this. I mean, this is almost, you know, this is, I wouldn't use the, I won't use the word here, but it goes, you know, if you, if you look at how many people put a tattoo on their bodies with the brand still today embodied in it, so much more you believe in than the material, in the product or the value of money that you can associate with it. What can you do for, for really for yourself where people say, hey, you know, there's much more at stake, there's much more I'm buying into than just the monetary value. And then the last one is probably that I could mention, and then I'll, and I'll wrap it up here, but how does it make your customer feel? You know, most companies are great at measuring customer satisfaction indexes uh, or NPS, net promoter scores, another great way that really gives you a bit of a steer on how people felt the minute they transacted with you, but not much more beyond. There are a few alternative models, but how many smiles do you put on people's faces? 
right? If you're really honest and how can you measure it? And it also means how close can or do you want to be with your customer? So those are five or four, I'm not quite sure how many I gave you, but four, maybe maybe five, six core principles, I think, are totally uh, transportable, transferable, but they need you to take a step back. They need you to rethink what you actually do. They need you to rethink or really deliberately rethink and spend time with either yourself or as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneurial business or even a larger corporation. Some of the companies I work with are you know, huge. And for them, it's even more difficult if you're once there and you've been around for you know, 30, 40, 50 years to re-question some of these basics, some of these fundamentals. It's really hard work. This is, kind of, you know, this is kind of what we do. We help with relatively simple language and simple frameworks to articulate this. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. And I think it's something that a lot of people oftentimes or small business owners or sometimes maybe large business owners, but but doubtful, uh, don't spend enough time on. And they understand that they need to build it, but really sitting down and drawing it out and, and discovering your, your purpose, your mission, what you truly believe I think it's core. So I really appreciate that message and the, you know, kind of the tips you gave us to to translate those into our own lives. But uh, so for those that, you know, want to learn more about brand affairs and what you do, uh, where can we find out, you know, a little bit more about you and that company? Well, you know, brand affairs, you can simply go and, and, and check us out. We're small. We're really boutique. There's only about 15 of us and uh, mainly between uh, Zurich and London. Uh, primarily, although I'm in over in the US end of November as well. But so we're really small. Brandaffairs.com. Just check us out on brandaffairs.com. If you want to check out more what I do, specifically the thinking in the luxury space, you can check that out on my website, marcuskramer.net. Um, uh, and you can look at latest thinking um, and on the blog where I unpack some of these, um, uh, some of these luxury thinking. And you can um, uh, very, very happily you know, connect with me on LinkedIn or, or, or any other social network. Yeah, that's great. And we'll definitely go ahead and link to that right on the post at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Marcus, really wanted to say thanks for being on the show. It's been a blast. I know it's been a long time in the making, but uh, happy to finally make it happen. <laughs> yeah, hey, pleasure's mine on my side and uh, really pleasure talking to you guys. And if anyone out there can apply some of these luxury principles and make uh, life for themselves and anyone else around them better, then great. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Marcus. If you did enjoy it, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher, leave a rating and review there. And if you had anything that you wanted to talk to us about, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. I actually don't have anything, so I'm, I'm good, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> we'll see you next week.